microphone this morning. It has been a complete joy to be with you this weekend. I say that for a lot of reasons. Um, you have extended to me God's most gracious and welcoming heart. You've been so attendant by being here Friday night and Saturday morning, and then also just in terms of just the engagement, great questions and much encouragement as we have blasted our hearts with more of the grace of God. One of the first things I said Friday night that is if we read the Bible seriously from beginning to end, from Genesis through Revelation, we will see one big unfolding story with one primary hero, that person being Jesus himself. And the more we see of Jesus, the more we will be led to conclude that there's nothing more than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's just more of it. We will forever be mining the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that's one of the principal reasons this past weekend we have been focusing on heaven. Many of us have many foolish notions of heaven. We think of it as a giant hymn sing. We think it of it of it is being a place beyond this world. Some of us have grown up thinking of heaven as being up in the clouds and uh, a very ethereal place that has nothing really to do with the life that we share in God's world as God's people. And this weekend we've been considering the fact that no, um, it's true to say right now this world is not my home, but the next word should be yet. It is true that as followers of Christ, if we should die this very morning in this service of worship, the good news would be to be absent from these bodies would be to be present with the Lord. There is a wonderful intermediate state called paradise where followers of Christ, those saved by grace plus faith plus nothing, are living right now consciously aware with their glorified spirit in eternity. But no one has their resurrection body yet. No one has entered into the fullness of heaven the way we've been studying it this weekend in Revelation 21.1 through 22.6. That being said, what we want to do this morning is not so much primarily talk more about the vision of the future earned for us by Jesus that impacts how we live now. We want to move beyond the last vision of the Bible to the last verse in the entire Bible. And that's why the scripture reading in a moment is going to be one verse, the very last verse in the entire Bible. Before I read this, think with me for a moment. If you or I were God, and thank heavens we are not, but if we were the one called to write the word of God for the people of God of every generation, what would be the final word? What would be the last thing that we would want to say at the end of a book that's been written through a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors? Let me say that again. From Genesis through Revelation, 66 books, it took 1,500 years to write. There are 40 different authors, God himself being the architect of the entire Bible and the author of each individual part. Well, How do you finish with a flourish if you're the living God writing his book forever? And I love the theme of finishing with a flourish. Two weeks ago, I was with my uh, 
wife of 45 years, Darlene, and uh, our oldest of two children, Kristen, and her son, our first of three grandsons, whose name's Finn. Finn's an awesome eight-year-old. And we were up in Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, at a friend's home right on the Land of Lakes region, right on a big lake. And Land of Lakes has a population of 832 people, Ron Brown. We're talking a hamlet. But they know how to do Fourth of July fireworks. And they have a citizen in their little community that reaches into his pocket every year and pulls out $30,000 for fireworks and for Fourth of July festivities. And you know, usually Fourth of July fireworks finishes what? With the grand finale, finishing with a flourish. And I tell you, in this little community, it was quite a flourished ending that that evening ended with. And it was so fun to watch my grandson's excitement as we felt those cannons go off and just the utter joy of being with so many people in that beautiful region of northern Wisconsin. Well, we're not talking the fireworks of the 4th of July right now. We're looking at something far grander that should produce awe, astonishment, wonder, deep encouragement, transforming hope. And the flourishing finish of the Word of God is found for us in this one verse. And after I read this verse in the 25 minutes or, mo- 25 minutes or so I have, we're simply going to unpack this one glorious verse, trusting our Father to give us in these moments an opportunity to marinate, to soak to risk believing that the gospel is as good as our God says it is, that Jesus is as wonderful and merciful of a Savior as he claims to be, that our Abba Father has begun a good work in us and in his world that he will complete. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Here's here the last verse, not just of the book of Revelation, but the last verse of the entire Bible. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Let me read that again. One short verse, but a verse that's pregnant with glory. It is so loaded. It is just enormous in its implications. Last verse of the entire Bible. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Let me pray for us briefly. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, glorious triune God, thank you so much for the privilege that we have had this weekend to marinate in the last vision of the Bible, to risk believing that everything you want us to understand about heaven is actually true and it's real. Thank you, Father, that heaven is not a spiritual sphere, it's a real place, and that one day Jesus will return to this world to finish making all things new. Thank you that the good work you began, Father, includes redeeming a family from every single race, tribe, tongue, and people group. And it also includes one day the utter transformation of the very world you created that you declared to be good. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. And under that end, we pray now that you would help us understand why you finished the entire Bible with the benediction of, and blessing 
of the grace of Jesus being with us, your sons and daughters. To this end, we pray with anticipation and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I got a little bit lower with you because I like to make eye contact. The older I get, the more these eyes are getting diminished. I've had LASIK surgery and have progressive lenses. So I've had a lot of work done on my eyes, and I'm not legally blind, but I am legally free now to be far more among my brothers and sisters. Something sometimes about an, a lifted up pulpit um, it gives me an unfortunate advantage as though I'm looking down at you. But today as we think about God's grace, I want to be among you as one that is so thirsty for the reality of which we will speak for these next 20 minutes or so. How are we to understand this glorious verse? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Truly. Amen. Punchline. Well, in many ways, the entire book of Revelation has been leading up to that point. Whole Bible indeed, but in particular, the book of Revelation itself. I started studying the book of Revelation about 30 years ago very seriously when one of the first Bible studies I got to teach in Nashville, Tennessee, was hosted by one of our founding elders, an amazing musician named Charlie Peacock. And maybe some of you have heard of the Art House. It was a great gathering in a part of Nashville called Bellevue. And about 150 to 200 students, young adults, older adults would cram in to this former little Methodist church that became Charlie and Andy Peacock's home. And we studied the scripture. And I taught through Galatians. And I taught through, taught through, um, Romans, And then finally, there was a consensus. We need to study the book of Revelation. And it scared the bejeebies out of me because my early experience of Revelation promoted more fear than faith. But it was the first time I actually went through the whole book. And going through the whole book, I became convinced it is the summary of the entire Bible. And it is to be truly experienced as one of the clearest, most encouraging statements of what God would say to believers and non-believers alike. In fact, this morning, if you're someone here just invited by a friend or coming in the community and just uh, not even sure what you believe about God or Jesus or this thing called the gospel, you are as welcome here as anybody because what God has to say to one of us, he says to all of us. Well, what is he saying to us in this magnificent verse and through this book of Revelation? What is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? What does that mean? I'm going to give you just four of what we could perhaps present as a thousand categories to think about God's grace and its connection for us today. But here are the four words. If you're a note taker or someone that simply has a good memory, four S words will frame this conversation today. So you'll know where we are in the timeline. You know when you're getting close to having lunch as I get to that fourth affirmation. But here are the four words. The saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, the saving grace of Jesus. Number two, the saning grace, S-A-N-E, sanity, gospel sanity, the saning grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the sufficient grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, bound up with what we've been studying this weekend, the sensational grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word sensational, calling forth our understanding that as image bearers of God, we are a sensate people. Every aspect of our being 
uh, was originally made good and is to be liberated and redeemed by our God. So how does this, how does this fourfold affirmation of grace, how can it be seen in the book of Revelation? What do we mean when we talk about the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you have a Bible close by, turn all the way left to the first chapter of Revelation, and let's just think for a moment, let's marinate together in this uh, amazing statement of our God about who Jesus actually is. Now, like a lot of you, not all of you, but like many of you, I grew up in the South, and I grew up going to church uh, from the earliest days I can remember. But the church I grew up in in North Carolina, we weren't fighting liberals. We weren't fighting fundamentalists. We were just Southerners that went to church every week, didn't make a big deal about it. We weren't angry about a lot of stuff. But unfortunately, in that church culture, which I was part, I heard a lot of words that really had no practical connection. There's more of an assumed gospel than an embraced gospel. It's more like we just went to church because that's what you do when you grew up in North Carolina. And uh, it's just assumed. And so it was many years later, first of all, I did not actually come to Christ till as a senior in high school. But then even after becoming a believer in 1968, there were a lot of years when I had still a lot of uh, insufficient understanding about who Jesus was. Uh, just a, a, a very small notion of the glory and the grace of Jesus. And, and so when I read these words now, as a man pushing his 68th birthday, it's just like I felt like I'm just beginning to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the riches that are ours because of who he is. Here's how John even begins this magnificent letter, Revelation 1. Uh, let's actually read from verse 4. John writes, To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, look at this, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John begins this incredible book of Revelation at an hour when the world is crazy. The Roman world is roaring. The church is young and weak. It looks like she'll be annihilated. So what does the church need in a time of crisis? What does the church need when it seems like we are so small and vulnerable, we, we, we don't need hype, we need hope. And that centers on a person, the person of Jesus. And in these opening words, I love even what John says here, grace and peace to you from God himself and from God the Holy Spirit and from Jesus. The whole Trinity is committed to give us grace that leads to peace. Never does the Bible reverse the order. Grace always precedes peace. Whatever your sense of anxiety or fear or anger or disconnect or even cynicism today, what you want is peace, but there is no peace apart from the grace of Jesus. You see, Jesus, as we read in this opening verse, fulfills all three offices that were given to God's people in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the one who is not just the speaker of truth, but truth himself. He is incarnate truth. He is the very word of God, is the same John who wrote the gospel that John affirmed. He is the faithful witness. Jesus does not lie. We can listen to him. 
He is the firstborn from the dead. And that's a bold affirmation that he is the fulfillment of Israel's priesthood. Pastor Ron's going to be preaching a 900-part series on the book of Hebrews coming up. Actually, just 17 parts. And I wish I could be here for that because the book of Hebrews is all about this Jesus, that he's so much more beautiful and wonderful. And to say that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead is to say that he is our high priest who was a sacrifice for us before he was resurrected to be our wonderful, merciful, great high priest. What do you give a high priest? You give him your brokenness, your sin. John is saying at the beginning of this book, we have someone that does not lie to us or spin. We have the perfect work of Jesus on our behalf who right now ever lives to pray for us. Thirdly, he right now, not in the future, right now is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the greater David that we read about through Isaiah 55 today. God promised a great affection for his son David in view of the ultimate David, Jesus himself. So what is the saving grace of Jesus as we think about everything Jesus is? We'll look at the very next verse. I love this. Beginning of, end of verse 5, beginning of verse 6. And, and I, when I read these words, I think of John almost standing like at a great banquet toasting someone. It sounds like a toast. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Some of us, maybe all of us, grew up singing the little song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is the only verse that clearly says in the entire Bible that Jesus loves us right now. To him who loves us. Wherever you are in life right now, believer, non-believer, wherever you are in life, your deepest, most eternal relational longings are met in that one verse. Without a doubt, the greatest expression of our brokenness and demonstrating that we need the grace of God is how we do relationships. I think people idolatry is more pronounced than anything else in our broken world because we think that people can fill up the place that is reserved for Jesus. You're not wrong to want to be loved, known, accepted. But that longing gets sabotaged by thinking this kind of love, this kind of grace can be found in anybody other's embrace other than Jesus. To him who loves us right now. We said this all weekend long that if you are in Christ, if you're someone that received the saving grace of Jesus right now, God loves you as much as he will ever love you and he'll never love you less. You cannot add to God's love for you. You cannot take away from it. In fact, because he's hidden your life in Christ, he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. We read that this morning, this confession. Thank you for putting in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 60, because we all, uh, a few moments ago, read words that we, either, we were either lying when we read them because we don't really believe it, or we didn't understand the radical implications of what we read. You know what you affirmed together this morning? that because of this Jesus, his prophet, priest, and king, because his work is complete, right now you are legally considered by God to be righteous in Christ. And God relates to you now not based upon your performance or your failure, but Jesus' perfect work. 
finally, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. We need that all the time. The reformer Martin Luther once said, I need to hear the gospel of God's grace every day because I forget it every day. We move on to the second of four affirmations. What's another way as we read through the book of Revelation about the practical connections for what it means to be the church of Jesus and why we need each other and why these marvelous college students that have invested six weeks of their life, why we need to pray for them and walk with them is God sends them out into every sphere of culture and life with this good news, with this narrative that they're now embracing more fully as their own. Well, we never move from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we move, however, into the second point of a sermon, which is the saning grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the beginning of chapter 4 in Revelation. One of the next things that becomes evident in the book of Revelation for God's people living in Rome, a life on earth as in heaven, a people in Rome positioned to live out the hope of the ultimate city, the new Jerusalem that's coming to us, you read the Revelation, you see tons of confusion because many times the life God's promise seems to be contradicted by the circumstances we experience. I hope you're honest enough in this church to admit that sometimes the will of God is an absolute mystery to you at best that's sometimes confusing, if not offensive at worst. You know what? You're in good company if you say, I don't get God sometimes. I don't get his ways. I thought when I was going to become a follower of Christ, the abundant life was going to be my experience. Well, you were not wrong, but maybe like me as a young believer, you assumed that abundance only meant really predictable, enjoyable stuff. The abundant life is full of a lot more than simply pleasantries. Why? Because God is committed to make us like Christ. And he's going to, Reveal our weakness and our brokenness that he might more fully free us to understand there is only one love that is better than life. There is only one story worth living in as a character and as a carrier. And that's why this theme of, I don't understand, oh God, early in the book of Revelation takes us to the fourth chapter of Revelation and where perspective is giving. When I talk about the saning grace of Jesus, I'm talking about perspective. Remember one time many years ago as a young pastor, I went to a pastor's conference and there were some really great, wonderful, faithful pastors in Glen Airy, which is an area of Colorado Springs where the navigators have an incredible castle. And there was Ray Steadman, Howard Hendricks, and uh, Chuck Swindoll sitting on three benches. And I remember Chuck Swindoll saying two things I'll never forget. Number one, he said, the Christian life wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't for Christians. If it was just Jesus and me, it'd be great. Can I get an amen? Quiet one anyway. Second thing he said was this. 80% of life is perspective. Only 20% is event. And by that, he meant this, that so much of what it means to know the grace of God is God gives us perspective even when he does not give us relief. In fact, if we're only wanting relief in life, we will see Jesus as a poor narcotic because he has not promised us relief as much as he's promised us transformation. But he does give us perspective. It's why. Look at the first part of chapter 4. John the Apostle 
beginning now to see the unfolding of the ultimate story and, 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 and what life will be like between the resurrection of Jesus and return of Jesus. Here's the gift he's given that we're given as well. John, in his early description of heaven, says this, After this I looked, Revelation 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. That's where I want to pause for a moment. Two things. Number one, when it comes to the saning grace of Jesus or coming back to gospel saning perspective about life in our world or where is history going, two things here in chapter four that are so life-giving. Number one, John says, John hears God say to him, John, come here. I'm going to show you what must take place. Not might, but must. I love the mustness of the word of God. One of the central themes of the saning grace of God, the thinking rightly, is that we see that God is a lot more sovereign than he seems to be. And that he is in control. And that things in this world are not as they appear. This is our Father's world. And so this principal image that God gave John was what? He said, I saw, he didn't start talking about streets of gold and angels doing cartwheels for Christ and angelic choruses. He said, I saw a throne with someone sitting on it. Dear friends of First Pres Panama City and extended six-week guests, a lot of what we need in life is a clearer vision of the occupied throne of heaven. And you see, that's a lot of what the book of Revelation begins to do, talking far more about the one who is on the throne, namely our resurrected Jesus, and the fact that he does have the whole world in his hands. That as crazy as our own culture has been in these last 18 months, months as weird and dark as parts of our national, global history have been through ISIS, through, you know, whatever's going on in North Korea or anywhere and everywhere, this we can be certain of. It's no different than the Rome of John, and it's just as essentially needing the saning perspective of the occupied throne in heaven. Now, you need to lay hold of that for your own story, and we all need to lay hold of it as the people of God for how we live out this calling right here in Panama City and to the ends of the earth. There is an occupied throne of heaven. The saving grace of God, see more of Jesus. Understand the unsearchable riches that we have in union with him. Understand the grace of God in Christ for you. See the occupied throne of heaven. Thirdly, on to the fourth point. Third thing we see as you further go through the entire Bible, but for our focus this weekend, the book of Revelation. From chapter 4 right up to chapter 19, life gets incredibly complex. Matt this morning. Matt, where are you? You still here? Taught Sunday school this morning. Is Matt here? He's in deacon duty. Well, dear Matt was talking through First Peter about the normalcy of suffering. Through First Peter. And see, one of the great things about Revelation 4 moving forward to chapter 19 is we begin to discover 
that, that the gospel of Jesus, that true Christianity, I'm not talking about Christian subculture, I'm not talking about its various aberrant forms that comes at us through social media and all kinds of weird, crazy expressions of the gospel in the world. Real bona fide Christianity, real gospel leads us to understand the gospel of God's grace is the end of all posing and pretending. I think you actually used those words earlier in the service in your prayer or something, Ron, just the permission we have to come here. You and I are wearing robes, but this isn't hiding anything, right? If anything, see, historically, robes are meant to say the guy that wears the robe should be the most humble because he's taking on an office that doesn't distinguish him from everybody, just says, I'm speaking for God. Who do I think I am? And Dean, thank you for loaning me your robe. (laughs) Brief shout out to Pastor Dean yesterday. Dean and Ron and I were fishing in your glorious golf. Where's Captain Bill? You in the room, Bill? There he is. All right. We went fishing. I want you to know, just because Dean doesn't look like it, He caught a fish yesterday. We didn't have to throw back because it was too small, but because it was too big. Ask him about that after the service. That's the way ADD works, by the way. I just went fishing. All right, we're back in the text now. (laughs) Revelation 4 to 19, leading up to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Life is messy. Life is confusing, individually and corporately. And this is where we think about the bold, affirmation of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of sufficient grace. Now, we know that language from the Apostle Paul himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, who's one of my real heroes in the gospel. I love the life of Paul because it's so attractive because he was such an honest man. When Paul was depressed, he talked about despairing of life. When Paul was alone, he talked about people abandoning him. Now, he wasn't into whining and self-pity, but he was honest. And dear, 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 dear friends, as the church of Jesus, we need to be a community where where we realize that in grace, there's the end of all posing and pretending. I shared um, part of our conference about, as as a pastor, that I've done some of my most important growth in the sufficient grace of Jesus after I turned 50 years old. It was only after I turned 50 that I finally made it back to my mom's grave for the first time, and she died when I was 11. My soul so shut down in the family system I grew up in where my dad, when mom died, went into about a two-year depression and just did not speak, and, and I was just an orphan in my own home. And the emotional impact of the loss of my mom marked me so deeply. Absolutely one of the most fear, shame-based little guys you would have ever met. Part of that as well, as I mentioned, I'll just speak out now for those of you that had a narrative like mine. Mom died when I was 11, three years before that. I know now, which is part of my story that I only began to look like, look at when I was 56. I, along with my wife, we both are those who have a story of childhood sexual abuse. And that really marked me deeper in terms of my masculinity and insecurities, even as pastor, husband, dad and friend. When we talk about the sufficient grace of Jesus, we mean this. Nothing that has ever happened in your life, nothing that's ever been a part of your story before or after you've come to know Jesus is beyond the care and reach of the grace of God. Our Savior is a healer. 
And sufficient grace is not just the kind of grace that tides you over to the end. It meets you. You see, the Lord is not just taking us to heaven when we die. He's bringing heaven into our hearts while we live. We're to be an extension of that story in, in life. So a lot of people in Panama City that just so assume people that come inside these four beautiful stained glass walls are so different from them that we're so much better. We talk to angels every day. We have just, you know, amazing visions and, 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 and we're just so much better than they. We, we know what they don't know. We know we need the grace of Jesus. Amen? And when we live that in our culture, when our marriages struggle and we can do that together rather than disappearing, when we can bear each other's burdens, when, like my wife and I, many years into our marriage, we begin to discover brokenness and stories that we were not aware of when we very naively got married in 1972. It is a good thing. The sufficient grace of our Lord Jesus Christ for you and your own story, but also for our calling in the world where we live. There will always be enough God's, of God's grace. I can't tell you what that's going to look like, but I can tell you it will be there. Fourthly and lastly, the sensational grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you go into the final book of Revelation and you see the images from chapter 19 onward of the return of our true king, the return of our great high priest, the return of the true word of God, Jesus himself, the great prophet. When we see him, he comes on a giant horse as a bridegroom. And in chapter 19 to the end of the book, these three final, four final chapters of Revelation, John the Apostle, as he begins to describe the sensational wonder of the completion of our story, twice as he's recording what he sees, he falls down on his face with joy and overwhelmment, even beginning to worship the very angel that gave him the vision of how great our future is. When I talk about the sensational grace of God, I am boldly, gladly affirming what we just began to understand Friday night and Saturday morning of this week, that, that, that what we call heaven is so much wonderful. It's so much more wonderful. That the completion of our story is complete healing. According to the Bible, everyone that is in Christ one day will be as lovely as Jesus and as loving as Jesus. And that's meant to deeply, profoundly be hope in my heart. You see, when God begins to expose your sin and your brokenness, if you do not have an ultimate hope, you may be tempted to despair, running away, giving up. Like Jonah, life being too much, and you're buying yourself a one-way ticket to Tarshish. And that never ends well. No matter how fast we run, our Heavenly Father hikes His skirt and runs faster after us. We are just wise to say, Lord, take the mess that I am and bring Your mercy and grace to bear. Because here's the end of the story. And you see, lastly now, as we in a moment rise to sing our final hymn of the day, the more, the more we ponder and understand and study and with the eye of faith see God's future, the more we will live not for ourselves, but for Jesus who died for us and was raised for us, the more we will stop giving God bit parts in our stories and find our place in his story. 
men and women, eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has thought even entered into the mind of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And we love him because he first loved us and gave Jesus to be our forgiveness and our righteousness. Let me just take a few moments now and pray for us that we would maybe leaning into the rest of this day and the rest of the summer say, marination is a good theme. I live life too fast. I want to slow down and linger in the things of God. I want to consider grace to be so much more than maybe my culture or my spiritual background has convinced me that it is. It is most glorious because it's the grace of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for our Bible conference. Thank you for the privilege we've had Friday night and Saturday just to, to blast our hearts with the good news of your word. Lord, uh, I'm so glad many years ago you freed me from all the foolish notions I had about the Bible, that it was just a book of rules that I could not keep. Lord, thank you that you have for many years now, continue to show me that it's the unfolding story of redemption and restoration with Jesus as the hero, Jesus as the word, Jesus as the high priest, Jesus as the true king. And therefore, Lord, I pray in conclusion for everybody in this room, whatever age and stage, whatever anger, anguish, cynicism, hope, joy we might be carrying that we would know more of the saving grace, that it's grace from beginning, middle, and end, that there's grace for all of our needs, that it's not Jesus plus anything that reconciles us to you. And Lord, show us saving grace. Some of us have lost perspective, and fear more than faith is winning the day. Let us see the occupied throne of heaven, and let us see more clearly you and the Lamb and the fullness of the Spirit occupying that throne, that we might be glad, that we might live as servants, joyful servants, not fearful orphans. Lord, sufficient grace. What would it look like for many in this room? Lord, there are struggling marriages. There are some of us with stories of no longer being married, coming out of brokenness. There are some of us that wish we had children and don't. Some of us that wish we didn't have children and do. We are single, we're married, we all need sufficient grace. We've all been victims of sin and agents of sin. Show us, Lord, sufficient grace. And lastly, Lord, as it would please you, by your Holy Spirit, fill our hearts with the hope of eternity that we as a church might live and love missionally because heaven is a real place and Jesus is a great Savior in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen.